When it comes to discussing The Hurt Locker, it helps to know that the film's director, Catherine Bigelow's background, is in painting. With a BA from San Francisco's Arts Institute, she won a scholarship to New York's Whitney Museum. It was while there that Andy Warhol encouraged her to study film. Bigelow then entered a master's program in Columbia University, focusing on film theory and criticism. So, when it comes to Bigelow's pictures, there is always a very rigorous reason why things look the way they look. You know, I'm a, I'm a child of the 60s, and so protesting war is something that started my adult life. And so I think when I was in the art world, I was very interested in political art, two-dimensional, non-narrative. And then when I began to transition, very interested in obviously wonderful kind of transgressive filmmakers like Pasolini and Fassbender and Kenneth Anger, but then then became really intrigued by Peckinpah, Fuller, Paths of Glory, Strange Love. And this was, you know, as I was beginning to segue and transition into film. Set largely in Iraq, The Hurt Locker never bothers to contextualize the ins and outs, rights and wrongs of America's presence in the country. They are there and that is that. And to me, that is a good thing because the film doesn't get bogged down in the familiar speeches that litter so many films about war. Instead, Bigelow addresses the issues in a non-verbal way and in a much wider context. Take, for instance, the film's opening sequence. Staff Sergeant Matthew Thompson, played by Guy Pearce, has to disarm a suspected explosive device in suburban Baghdad. Oh, look at that. Nice 155, huh? Yeah. 155? Gonna do some fucking damage. Hey, Eldridge, looks like we're gonna need a charge. Oh, I got that. Figured four blocks. That'll give us about 20 pounds of bang total. That blast is gonna roll straight out there. The shell will probably kick out there. Most of the shrapnel's gonna shoot straight up in that beautiful umbrella pattern. Yep. We're gonna get some smaller pieces and shell fragments this way, but we'll be okay for behind the Humvee. You bring the box back and we'll load it up? No problem. Meanwhile, his two servicemen keep a watchful eye out for snipers. There is the possibility that the device is nothing more than a decoy to lure them into a shooting gallery. So, while Thompson is at the most apparent risk, the reality is that none of them are safe. The scene, already fraught with tension, coils tighter as a local man suddenly emerges from a butcher shop carrying a cell phone. Immediately, there is a danger that he is going to use the device to detonate the bomb. This is where Bigelow's background as a conceptual artist reveals itself. In quick succession, we are given a series of shots, some, but not all, in slow motion. And again, some, but not all, show us Guy Pearce as he tries to get to safety. Instead, some images give us startling and wholly unexpected glimpses of the environment. Please take note of that word. Firstly, a wide shot shows Pearce racing from the explosion as the device in the background begins to blossom into the atmosphere. Next, we see pebbles rising from the ground in a manner that would suggest that gravity has suddenly lost its hold on the Earth. Then we see a decrepit, rusted frame of a long abandoned car. The shockwaves impact and the car shudders, red dust loosening into the air. By now, the explosion behind Guy Pearce resembles a geezer shooting water up from the Earth. These shots are in slow motion, and then, just as our eye is becoming accustomed to their dilatory rhythm, Bigelow blows us back into real time and a series of even quicker cuts show the impact of the explosion. I was, um, I was intrigued by the war 
and by you know what could be a, a, a good entry point for this particular conflict from mm -hmm. a filmic standpoint and I was in aggressive opposition to this invasion trying to figure out how to um, turn that commentary into a film and so I always felt that war was kind of the the great canvas kind of containing all the sort of major themes of our time. Few, if any, other filmmakers would concentrate on the pebbles and rust. But what Bigelow is doing is visualizing the impact of the explosion upon the environment. I did ask you to please take note of the word. Now, I don't mean the ecology. I mean the world, ourselves in it, what we are doing to it, and what we are doing to ourselves. Firstly, Bigelow shows us an arena already defiled by the war that is now being even further abused as yet another explosion causes the pebbles to defy the laws of physics. Then the car, which is in an irreparable state of decay, is further ruined by the bomb. So instead of Bigelow devoting pages of script to speeches about the effects of war, she visualizes it in a most arresting fashion. The environment is once more wrecked and a man's life is lost. Micro and then macroscopically, the short sequence, barely 120 seconds, has no less than 70 different shots from 40 different angles. For the explosion itself, Bigelow used nine different cameras running simultaneously but at different speeds, all to capture the impact. Here is a visual artist who has taken her painting technique and adapted it into a completely different medium. Remember, painting is a static image. It can only suggest movement, but cinema is an entirely different proposition. To prove this, Let's talk about the sound and the way cinematic sound works. I stress cinematic sound because cinematic sound is completely different from the sound of real life. The way cinematic sound works is that it can indicate the physical presence of things that are not seen. Or even more cinematically, a sound can promote a feeling that runs contrary to what you are seeing. I wanted to blur the distinctions between sound and score. You have this kind of wonderful um, interface of these two disciplines, which usually are quite discreet. But I realized in a movie that predominantly has to work based on tension and surprise and suspense, music and the, and the repetition of a rhythm is actually comforting, you know, even if it's dissonant. With all that in mind, it won't come as a surprise to learn that The Hurt Locker received Academy Awards for Best Editing, Best Sound Editing and Best Sound Mixing. Cinema is made up of many different disciplines and it requires an especially articulate director to know not only how to utilise those disciplines, but when. Let's take the opening sequence again. I like that. Crabgrass, St. Augustine, man. I'm a scholar on this shit. How about this? You sell it, I fertilize it. <laughs> 25. 25 meters, roger that. Sanborn, put your shop two o'clock. Dude has a phone. Why is Eldridge running? Make him put it down. Put down the phone. Come on, guys, talk to me. Drop the phone. Drop your shit. phone. Hey, burn him, Eldridge. Burn him. Put down the cell phone. Get a 
Because he is wearing a protective suit, Guy Pearce's helmet and visor don't allow us to clearly see his face, so we can't see his emotion. Instead, while the visor conceals his performance, Bigelow is not so much directing him as orchestrating the action around him and by turn directing the audience. Bigelow does this by giving us snippets of sound and images. She makes sure that the frame is constantly in motion, that the camera is handheld, and that the focal range of the lenses keeps shifting, which means your eye can never settle. The sounds are mixed so that we can hear the conversations of Pierce's colleagues, but also hear his breathing as well. So, while we have a wide shot of the open space, we also hear the claustrophobic breath from inside Pierce's helmet. We hear one thing and see something else. And the aggregate of both gives us a third impression that neither of the single elements could convey on their own. That is cinema. In the art world, you're not working with the narrative structure. You move into film and it's all narrative. So I was trying to look at that interface. Then I stumbled onto a, a midnight screening at the Bleecker Street Cinema of a double bill, Mean Streets and The Wild Bunch. So then suddenly it became all very, um, I don't know, I suppose, emotional and psychological. And, mm -hmm. and, and then, then I began to embrace the narrative. And, and I don't know, I, I suppose Wild Bunch is a game changer for virtually every filmmaker who sees it. There is at least one other sequence that is worth mentioning. Staff Sergeant First Class William James, played by Jeremy Renner, goes out on yet another mission to disarm a device. As he does so, he has to trace the wire to the detonator, so he gently pulls it clear of the sand, only to realise it's connected to a system of bombs that are lying all around him. If this were a horror or a science fiction movie, it would be now that the hero realises he is surrounded and outnumbered by hideous aliens and is about to meet his doom. But Bigelow has done more than that. She has neatly visualised 21st century terrorism, what Renner's character thought was just a single threat is in fact an intricate and ever-multiplying network of war. Now that is top-class directing. Catherine Bigelow made film history when, in 2010, she became the first woman to be awarded the Oscar for Best Director. But in that same year, she managed a number of other firsts as well. She was the first woman to win the BAFTA and the even more coveted Directors Guild of America Award. But above and beyond that, whether she was honoured with those awards or not, Bigelow created a film that stands alongside some of the most important and groundbreaking war pictures ever made.